Hi, welcome to Carbon Design's MindShift podcast. I'm Scott Gellum and I'll be your host today. We'll explore new ways of thinking, new technologies, and new insights to help drive business performance. So let's get started. Okay, good morning and welcome to MindShift. Today's guest is Aisha Armstrong. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Uh, it's early in the morning, I'm going to have one cup of coffee. Uh, you are the CEO of Vectris and uh, founder, but more importantly, you are a soon-to-be author of the book called Product Ties. Welcome this morning. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It's great for our audiences to just get a little bit of your background, and then we're going to lead into the story about uh, how you put together the book, which I'm really passionate and interesting about talking through because I've, I've lived this and I'm thinking about living it again. So it'll be great to talk to you and talk to myself off the uh, cliff here. So talk a little bit about your background and then we'll jump into uh, talking about uh, putting the book together and the topic of the book. Okay. Uh, So just a little bit of personal information. Um, I grew up in Kansas in a town called Manhattan, Kansas. It's a little apple. Uh, I did my undergrad at University of Kansas. So Rock Chalk Jayhawk huge college basketball fan, um, where I studied economics and women's studies. And then after graduation, I moved to Washington, D.C., where I got a research analyst job with a small-ish company at the time called the Advisory Board Company. It was owned by David Bradley. And ended up staying with that company or spinoff of that company for almost the next 20 years of my career. Uh, So the company um, split in two. I went with what became the Corporate Executive Board, or CEB, uh, where I rose through the ranks of research analyst up to project manager. Uh, They sponsored me to go get my MBA at Harvard, Uh, came back and started running uh, business lines for CEB, uh, and ultimately uh, left in 2015 uh, to join the media company EW Scripts, uh, which is headquartered in Cincinnati, which is actually where I'd been living uh, for 10 years at that point. So it was nice to get a job with a company that was headquartered in the city where I lived. Uh, and Scripps was in the process. They just divested all of their newspapers and were buying digital media properties and were sitting on all of this new data. And they wanted to bring in kind of data product expertise to help them understand how they could better leverage um, the data assets that they were collecting. So I headed up product management for their data analytics uh, business. Uh, until 2018, when I teamed up with a former CEB colleague, uh, and we co-founded Vectris, uh, which is a boutique uh, product innovation company. Uh, And we focus specifically on B2B services companies who want to um, create new products out of their existing intellectual property. So that could be content products, it could be data products, could even be a software product. Um, and that's, that's our focus. Great. Great. And so at this time in the process, what led you to saying, okay, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write a book because I think all of us at some point who work in professional services gets to a point where like, I should write a book, but actually doing it, (laughs) 
is another thing. So how did you get to that point and say, you know what, I'm going to commit to time and I'm going to do it? Well, COVID happened. And honestly, Scott, like business slowed down for about three to four weeks. And I didn't know when it was going to ramp back up. So I am definitely one of those Pollyanna-ish, glass half full, how can we reframe this horrible global pandemic into something positive type people? So got the um, somewhat naive idea that that would be the perfect time to try to write uh, the book that I'd been thinking about writing for a while. Um, And I will say, you know, we um, are... We don't do a lot of marketing, but the marketing that we do is content marketing, thought leadership. So I had at that point, this was, you know, March of 2020, I had about a year's worth of blog posts and a framework um, that I had created that we were using with our clients. So I had some IP that I thought I could turn into a book uh, as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, And how did you, I mean, at that point, going through that adjustment, you have children and, you know, there's all kinds of changes of staying at home and working at home and children at home and online schooling and everything else. How did you balance all that? I mean, this is a <laughs> difficult situation to say, okay, I'm going to write the book in the middle of this. Yeah. I don't know if I did it all too well. Um, I mean, I'm lucky in that my kids are 13 and 15. Uh, so they were somewhat independent with the online school. Um, there were, you know, obviously interruptions, but, business was a little bit slower than usual. So I had more time. Um, And I also, I didn't do this on my own. So I don't want to come across as some, you know, Wonder Woman type person, certainly not. So I have a team. I have a really good writing partner, researcher who helped with the book. Um, I had a, a team that's been helping create all the tools and templates that are part of the book. Um, helping me interview people for the book. So I was not doing this all on my own either. Um, And then having kids who are, you know, middle school, high school age also helped. Did you dedicate certain time of the day to just focus on this? No. So I should have, like I have, I could write, I could write a whole book on mistakes I made, (laughs) but um, I should have. So I naively, I'm so naive, Scott. Um, We had planned because everything got canceled last summer, we had planned uh, to spend the month of July out in Montana. And I thought, that's great. It'll be, you know, I'm going to cut back, like hardly do any work. And I'll spend a couple hours every morning working on the book. And by the time I get back from Montana, the book will be done. Well, (laughs) so uh, that didn't happen. Um, I did try to work on it a little bit each day while I was out there. And that's probably when I did the most amount of thinking work on it, but it certainly was not the two to three hours a day. Even if I had, that was not enough time. Yeah. Uh, You know, I had to spend another six months working on it. So yeah, that was pretty naive, but I tried. Now, you know, so you say you had a framework. How is the book put together in terms of the framework? I've read, you know, the beginning part of it and I haven't gotten all the way through, but just talk about having that framework. I think that's really important to understand how is this thing going to be put together? Yeah. So we had developed this framework that we actually use with our clients to just talk about this concept of productization and what is a good productization process look like. And, and what we found in our work with clients is that 
um, that process can help them avoid a lot of the common mistakes that we see organizations make when they go down this path of trying to go from customized services to more scalable products. So what we did is we devoted a, um, a chapter in the book to each part of the framework. And it starts with the most important part, which is your corporate culture, because mm-hmm. this is a pretty big change to go from customized services to more scalable products. So what are the people issues that you have to address first? And then it goes to your corporate strategy. How do you find important customer problems to solve? And it just goes through the innovation process using that, that framework. In, in your work with clients, what are what are the, mo- the motivations to move in this direction? I mean, logically, it makes a lot of sense, right? Scalable revenues, you know, being able to codify your intellectual property. What what are some of the things that you've seen, and, and what of those motivations are the good ones versus you maybe you are going down a path and, and it's going to be something that's not going to end well? Yeah. Well, I think for 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 profits because we work with both for profit and also non non profit for profit company valuation is a big part of this. So a dollar of services revenue, customized services revenue is not valued by investors at the same uh, valuation as a dollar of scalable product revenue. So if you can change your revenue mix, even a little bit, you know, from 100% customer services to maybe 80% customized services, 20% products, like you're going to increase your company valuation. So if you're, you know, owned by... Uh, PE, we've got, we work with a lot of companies who are owned by PE firms, or if you want to do some type of exit at some point, you know, you're a, a founder, um, that's valuation is, is important. Yeah. Um, kind of shorter term, more practically speaking, it allows you to grow without having to add costs at the same rate, arms and legs. And certainly in a labor market, like we're in right now, like it's, it's hard to find good people. Right. Um, so you can grow more scalably. Um, you can better retain talent. Uh, so sometimes, you know, traditional professional services, customer services that can customize services that can be kind of a slog. Uh, and so uh, it allows you to better retain talent and it gives you more revenue visibility, uh, yeah. especially if you're building subscription based products. Yeah. If I'm a professional uh, services organization, I'm thinking about making this transition to more product revenue. What should I be thinking about in terms of skill set, delivery model, business model, pricing model, everything? What what should I consider as I make that shift? And when should I think about these things as I'm going through this process? Yeah. So again, the first thing you should think about is, is your organization set up to do this? Um, because it does re- require a completely different mindset. So up until now, you've been thinking one-to-one, like I get to know Scott really well. I understand his business. I meet his needs um, versus one-to-many. And and that usually requires bringing in outside talent who've had some type of product experience. Um, the One of the biggest mistakes I see organizations make is they take somebody who was great at client services, really good voice of the customer, and they try to make that person a product person. And it nine times out of 10, it does not work out, Scott. And, and so that that is, I think, a big thing is just understanding you need a different, you need some people who have experienced thinking one-to-many as opposed yeah. to one-to-one. 
Um, and then the other thing is that there is going to require some type of upfront capital investment. So, you know, perhaps you can find clients who are interested in this and can help fund a little bit of the investment, but you will need some upfront capital to do market exploration, to do, you know, build a, an MVP and beta test it. And then you're going to have to invest in a different go-to-market model. Yeah. Um, so your, your, you know, consultants, for example, are not going to be able to sell this. It's a different skill set, and they may not want to sell it either. Yeah. Um, so there will be some capital investment um, for that. And then the last thing I would say is like really focus on what is the urgent and expensive problem that your target market has, as opposed to just trying to focus on how you can leverage yeah. IP that you already have. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the book goes into seven key mistakes that I see organizations make and those tie back to some of the, the key ones. Yeah. I, I was part of an organization and we went down that rabbit hole because we had built something incredibly um, at the time, incredibly unique for IBM, but only IBM had the size and skill and interest in solving a very complex problem. And then we couldn't sell it to anybody else. Yeah. So when do you, as you're going down that path, when should you look at um, perhaps shutting things down? And like when we, because you're going to travel down this path and there's a lot of things to change that you just mentioned. At what point could I alert myself to understanding, you know what, maybe this isn't going to work out and we can save ourselves some money and shut down a year in development cost or whatever it may be. But how would I know, like, are the red flags that I should just look at and say, okay, I got to shut things down? Yeah. So one of the things we encourage all our clients to do, and we talk about how to do this in the book, is to just create hypotheses around what you think the total addressable market is, what do you think the price point is, what you think your cost of goods sold will be, and then start to test those hypotheses. And if you're getting feedback from the market that you know there's only one person out there who will buy it, it's IBM, and they won't buy it at the price point that you want. And it's going to cost you a lot more money to maintain it than you thought it would, then shut it down. But that really simple um, idea of kind of coming up with a hypothesis or series of hypotheses about what you think makes this an attractive product opportunity, and then testing those hypotheses quickly <laughs> will give you the information as to whether or not you're you're onto something good. Yeah. I, I, I've worked with clients, and I always tell the story of Merck. Um, about making the market for cholesterol meds. Uh, up until that time, we believed the heart disease is all hypertension, and they discovered a, a you know a mushroom or a fungus in China that suddenly worked on cholesterol, but nobody knew about cholesterol. And mm. so we can thank Merck for our our cholesterol levels, our HDL and LDL, and everybody knows those levels, and that's because of Merck because they had a product. Have you seen organizations be able to be successful in making the market for their product and, and doing a great job of educating the marketplace to say, hey, this is what you really need, but they may not even know that they had a need? Yeah, I have, but it's hard. Yeah. So it's a lot easier to create a product that addresses an urgent and expensive problem that people already know they have. Yeah. Um, you will have to invest a lot more in customer education if they don't know it's a problem. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean it can't be done, right? Merck did it, but that is a much bigger investment. And so if you're choosing between two product options to go invest in, and one is 
a need that customers already know they have. And one is one where you're going to have to do a lot of education. I would look first at the one that customers already know they have that need. Yeah. And the other thing I think organizations can become very myopic on is thinking that they've created a mousetrap that is great and no one else has it. How do you get out of this internal viewpoint of look at how great we are, look at what we created versus the reality is that there is something else in the marketplace because I've also seen that problem happen as well. Yeah, yeah. And a big part of this, and we get into the book, is just how do you do some quick quick and dirty competitor analysis and look at your competitive landscape, both your traditional competitors, so what are they offering, but what are new um, startups offering in the space? So uh, digital first organizations, what are they offering? And then also what's the do it yourself or do nothing alternative um, for the consumer? So um, any good product can articulate what is the problem we are solving and how is it different than what is already out there, including do it yourself or do nothing. Yeah. Um, work with clients right now, even they already product companies still run into the problem of build it and they will come. Yeah. <laughs> if you're, you know, if you're an organization that has a product culture, right. Full of engineers and developers, how do you navigate around that? Yeah. So you have to have good product management uh, capabilities as well, as well, not just product development. And that starts with what is the urgent and expensive customer problem that we're solving? And then how is it different from what's already out there? So there has to be some product strategist who is yeah. asking that question and has a really good sense of what, what the market landscape is. What do customers need? What's already out there? Um, again, that's another mistake I see people make is they put very talented engineering talent um, into product management roles who perhaps don't have the business acumen yeah. or the um, commercial facing uh, skills to really make the product successful. How, how do you create that, that lens that Emperor has no clothes because a good, you know, organization that is really bent on this and, and really good product engineers will say, this is an urgent need. Like this is, a, how do you, are there criteria for defining urgent and expensive? Because they'll yeah, bend those. There are. <laughs> yeah. So, and again, this doesn't have to take a lot of time. I'm not talking about months and months of market research. And we can do this in as quickly as a week and just go talk to six or seven potential clients and come back and know if this is a good idea or not um, and, and find out. And the first question you ask is like, what's keeping you up at night? Like, what are your key priorities for this year? Uh, what, what are you doing to solve those problems? Okay. I have an idea for you. <laughs> what do you think of this? Like, is this, you know, is this hard? Like how much would you pay to solve the problem? And, and the book has like all these questions that you can ask in a half hour conversation, go yeah. talk to six or seven people and you'll know pretty quickly whether or not it's a good idea. It's worth just getting the book for that. <laughs> Thank I've, you. I've worked with really good product marketers who cannot stop the organization. I mean, it's just the momentum that these products are coming because they build them and they're really cool. And it yeah. doesn't mean that there's a market out there for them, but they're coming. Um, when should I consider maybe selling my IP and, and just get some licensing revenue? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, so one of the things I think that's important to know when you do that competitive landscape is not just look for competitors, but look for potential partners. 
So partners who perhaps already have the IP and yeah. you could, you know, acquire or do some type of rent share to, to do that. Um, or people who might be interested in your IP and could go distribute or sell that for you. Um, so a good competitive landscape sweep will not only be looking at competitors, but they'll be looking at, at potential partners. Things that you want to consider are how far behind are we already? So if you're really far, far behind, it might make sense for you to go out and acquire somebody else's IP rather than build it yourself. Um, or um, do we have the internal capabilities and the capital to invest in kind of creating this ourselves? Or could we just go, yeah. um, is it better to go license uh, what we already have to somebody who already has those capabilities to develop and bring it to market? So several screens you can run through. But again, when you're doing that competitor analysis, look for potential partners. Yeah, I've also um, had clients who have acquired the, the talent or skill set or developers or platforms that they needed. And, and that's not worked out well as well. And I, I guess it goes back to your culture issue. Any tips for companies who are considering that path? Um, yes. So the first one is really, really look at how far behind you already are. Um, if you are really far behind and that acquiring this capability is foundational to your longer term strategy, it's worth considering. Yeah. However, valuations right now are insane, like insane. Um, and I am not an M&A <laughs> expert, but this is one where I say right now, like, like go carefully, um, just given how, how high valuations are right now. Don't want to overpay. Yeah. We're working in the DeFi market and that is that, that is just a fast fascinating space right now. And you can see how it's creating it's creating bubbles. I mean, they're there and you can see where they're coming from. Um, but that's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're an organization now that has intellectual property and you think you want to go down the path and you've done your market research and you think that you're going to solve an urgent need that is very expensive how far out should I be looking? Because at some point I have to develop this product and get it to market. And then how do I get a feeling of how long that's going to be so that I can start planning these other things? So if I already gone through a couple of these stages, the development process, the beta testing, the MVP, the beta customers, like what am I looking at as a roadmap here? Yeah. So that's great. If you, if you have beta customers, um, you know, your next, your next thing is to, to prove that you can get revenue. Um, so um, certainly, you, you know, the rule of thumb is if that you've got a roadmap to a million dollars in revenue, like you can get outside funding. So even though you may not want to get outside funding, like how quickly can you get to a million in revenue? So after, post beta, that's what I'm looking for is how quickly can you get to a million in revenue? Um and what are your intern like what are your interim pipeline goals? So thinking about how many um, leads you need, how many sales interactions you need, and start tracking towards that to see if you're on track. But again, those are hypotheses. So you'll know pretty quickly, like are you able to generate the leads? Are you able to um, get sales visits with the leads that then get you to that million dollars in revenue? And, and what should I be looking at from a revenue or from a pro profitability perspective? I, you know, revenue goals are great, but then I still got to be, I've got a profit target in here. What's realistic to look at 
maybe early stage and, and later stage? What are the ranges that I should think about in terms of this is what my profitability target should be? Yeah. So we, we talk in terms of a couple of measures. So the first one is your operating margin um, and really focusing on your cost of goods sold. So, um, you know, if you're a professional services firm right now, you know, perhaps your um, operating margin is somewhere around 67. So let's call it somewhere between 60 to 70%, right? Yeah. So it makes sense to go to a product model if you can lower your cost of goods sold. So you can start to get, a, you know, operating margin of 70 to 80%, right? So you really want to look at, um, are you going to be able to improve your, your operating margin um, first and foremost? The second measure we look at is customer acquisition cost. Um, and uh, can you uh, lower your customer acquisition cost from where it is currently, or at least kind of keep it the same? Yeah. Um, so those are the two measures that I think are most important. You know, again, it depends on where you are right now with COGS. It depends on where you are right now with customer acquisition costs, but you definitely want to see an improvement in COGS and you want at least the same customer acquisition costs you currently have. Yeah. Is there, is there an interim step where I'm selling services and then I'm selling services off a platform and then I'm serving uh, now I'm selling the actual platform itself and then maybe throwing services off the back end. Is there some kind of migration path that makes things easier? There is. And honestly, I don't know if it, if you're going to get to a point where you'll want to completely jettison services um, if you get to a point where you've got a standalone product, it may make more sense to offer that as a, a spin out. Yeah. Um, but what I encourage organizations to think about is bundled solutions. So you have a great asset already, wonderful customer relationships. You've got great service offering. You don't want to just throw that away. What you want to do is introduce products to supplement those services and provide the customer with a solution that has better economics than what you're currently doing. Yeah. So that, that I think is, is the more realistic path for organizations. Now it doesn't mean that um, I haven't worked with companies who do create a standalone product. And then the question is, do we keep this in the current company or do we spin it off? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into the uh, sensitive area of, can you take a services seller and turn them into a product seller? <laughs> it's very hard to do, Scott. Um, and I, you know, I hate to to tell people that it's impossible, but I just it's so hard to do because it's such a big mindset shift. So if I've grown up in management consulting, for example, my entire professional success has been built around my ability to sell, to some degree, my expertise to sell me. And when you go to selling a product, you're no longer selling yourself, your expertise, you're selling the product. And that's, that's a really hard leap for people to make. And there's, there's like ego involved. I mean, it's not just skill set; it's like kind of fundamental to who they are and where their worth has come from. Uh, so I think your organizations are, are much better off thinking about setting up maybe a you know, a dedicated sales team to sell the product. Um, really thinking if they aren't going to do that creatively about incentives um, and how to change incentives to encourage sales of the product. Um, 
but ideally you're, you're setting up a dedicated sales team. Yeah. I know you've got a chapter dedicated, if not more on this. <laughs> um, yeah. How do you shift the compensation? Yeah. So a couple of things that I talk about different models I've seen in the book, but um, the most popular one is just to put a really big sweetener on commission for sales of the new products. Um, you could even go as far as to phase out um, highly bespoke services and not even allow people to sell those. But um, I think start with a really good commission sweetener on sales of new products. Yeah. Again, if you're not going to create a dedicated sales team for this. Right, right. Um, as you're going along the MVP route, and a lot of times you'll give away things for free, right? Uh, especially if you're building anything that's built on a data asset. Um, at what point do you pull the trigger to say it's no longer free? Because that's tough to figure out when that point is of giving away things for free and then starting to transition to fee. Yeah. So again, ideally you have a hypothesis <laughs> of what you need to see to know that now is the right time to make that transition. Um, and I always encourage our clients to at least keep something free. Uh, so some type of freemium model is great to get people, you know, into the funnel. You don't want to completely, eliminate it, but you may want to start to pare back what's free versus what you have to pay for. Yeah. Yeah. But ideally you've got a set of hypotheses that are telling you what you need to see in terms of customer demand signals to do that. And what kind of customer demand signals do I look for? Yeah. So I'm looking for utilization rate. So yeah. if there's high utilization rate of the freemium product, like that tells me that there's some value there. Um, I'm looking for, um, yeah, primarily utilization rate is the one I'm looking at. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think we've all run into our fair share of SaaS tools that are, um, you know, 2080 role here, you know, um, and quickly forgotten sometimes when after whatever the initial need was, you know, we've gotten through that, especially, you know, a lot of times you'll stand up certain tools for certain things and then they'll kind of go away, but yet you're still paying a monthly fee for those. Um, are, what about the education and then coming back and helping them understand how to fully utilize, like what should that role be in helping those customers who are using it? How do we remind them? And uh, this reminds me back to the CEB days, right? With memberships, like keep reminding them of, of the value because they come at certain times and they're not fully used utilizing everything they can get in the membership. So how do you, how do you deal with that with continue to teach and educate? What kind of program should I have around that so that they fully understand the value? Yeah. So when in my chapter where I talk about what, what I refer to as launch boldly, it's, it's not just about thinking really carefully about, do you have the sales capabilities to do this? And do you need to yeah. create a team? But it's also, what is your customer success infrastructure? Because you will need somebody or a group of people whose job it is to ensure that people are properly onboarded, that they're well-educated, that you're continuing to stimulate usage and that they're getting that voice of the customer back to the product team. Mm -hmm. So customer success is an investment that has to be made as well in order for this to be successful. Yeah. And, and how do you find beta customers that will roll with you through the glitches and through things not working the way they're supposed to, to work? How do, how do you find those types of customers? Yeah, that's a good question. 
So ideally, you've done a little bit of upfront market research where you've gone out and talked to potential customers. That those conversations can usually be a great place to source beta customers. Yeah. Um, because hopefully you found some people who said, yeah, this is a big problem for me. And if you could solve it, you know, that would be awesome. And then you come back to them a month later and you're like, hey, we've decided to run with this idea. Do you want to be a beta customer? And here's what's involved. And, um, you know, that's nice because they're getting affirmation from you that you heard them and now you want to solve their problem. We tend to think, you know, it's like a big ask to ask somebody to be a beta customer, but actually you're doing them a service. You're saying, I'm experimenting, coming up with a solution. Will you help me co-create this? Um, It's usually not as big of an ask as people think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. Okay. So when can I get the book? Great question. Thank you for asking. It will be available May 11th. And Uh, where can I get the book? On Amazon. That's where it will be available first. Uh, And you can go to theproductizebook.com. Okay. Theproductizebook.com for more information. And again, it's called Productize. Excellent. We'll make sure that we include that information when we send this out. Uh, Thank you. You'll have that along. Well, it was, it's been great speaking with you. I mean, personally, I've been through this. I'm with it with clients. And so this is an incredibly helpful conversation. Just it, it, there's a lot of logic to it and there's a lot of appeal and there's kind of that shiny little gold thing sitting out there that says, this is really great from a margin perspective and scalability, but it's, it's a difficult journey to get there. So I really appreciate your comments this morning. And, and I think people really appreciate the, the book is I don't know another hand guide out there that says, you know, this is what you need to get to productizing this great IP that you have and do it in a way that you can really shift because it's, it, there's so many pieces to it. It's great that you've written kind of a hand guide for that. That's the goal, like step-by-step, avoid these mistakes. Um, We also, there are tons of tools and templates uh, included. So trying to make it as as easy as possible. Excellent. Oh, great. I can't wait to read all of it. Wonderful. Thank you, Scott. Thank you.